This is your morning wake-up call on Sports Country. Grab a cup of coffee and hang with us every weekday morning for the latest news, sports, and other things going on around the world and in your backyard. Now, here's your host, Gene Gums. Well, good morning, everybody. It is six minutes past nine o'clock here in Middletown, Connecticut. Welcome to a Tuesday morning wake-up call on Sports Country Radio, a wet one here in the Northeast. Oh, I guess a lot of the country is uh, wet right now, but we're uh, uh, experiencing a fir- our first nor'easter. Thank God it's warm enough so the nor'easter is rain and not snow, but uh, it's our first one of the season. And uh, hopefully for me, my only one of the season. Uh, we'll be, uh, departing for points South here in the next 30 days. So, uh, hopefully, hopefully I can get the hell out of here before this, the, uh, the Nor'easter and the snow starts flying up here. Um, lots to get to. Well, actually, you know what? It's kind of a quiet sports day, but there was a bunch of, uh, things going on. We had uh, NFL football last night. We've got some baseball news going on. Um, I want to talk a little bit here in a minute about, uh, the potential work stoppage that we are going to have in major league baseball. Uh, coming up on December 1st. Uh, not something I am really looking forward to, but I want to go into that a, a little bit here in a minute. Uh, but before I do, um, in kind of a non-sports vein, I was reading the Hartford Current this morning, and uh, the lead story uh, on the front page is about how a local high school, Windsor Locks High School, uh, which is where uh, our main airport is here in the state of Connecticut. Windsor Locks High School is cracking down on cell phone use. Now, my first, you know, my first thing is, is well, what in the hell are kids doing with cell phones in school in the first place? You know, look, I, you know, again, at the risk of sounding like a get off my lawn guy, you know, cell phones don't belong in classrooms. Period. And I don't care what school you're in. I don't care what country you're in. Cell phones, you know, that's just like, you know, why don't you just let a kid have, you know, bring his uh, Nintendo Switch into class and play with that? Because it's essentially the same thing. The kids are going to spend more time on their phones than they are paying attention to what they're supposed to be learning, which, by the way, is part of the problem and why in this country that kids uh, don't learn the way they used to. You know, we, now we can chalk some of it up to the educational system and, and how uh, we've changed the way that we teach. But there are so many distractions now, and the schools are allowing kids to be distracted. I can't believe, honest to God, I read this, I was like, you mean this is an issue? And, and you know, here's, here's the thing. We went through an entire year plus of kids, you know, with distance learning, learning from home. So they could do whatever the hell they wanted to do, and nobody ever knew, right? Um but they're they're finding that you know kids are spending more time on their phones than they you know their heads down at their phones instead of up at the board or up at the teacher, and that's a problem. <laughs> no kidding, really. Uh, so what they're going to start doing is if the kids are caught with the phone, they're going to uh, the teacher's going to take it, put it in an envelope, and uh, then have the, a security guard take it to the main office, and the kid will get it back at the end of the school day. 
If it happens a second time, uh, then the only way the kid's getting it back is if uh, if this parent comes in to get it. And then the student gets a detention. Uh, if it happens again, there's going to be some kind of big meeting to devise a quote-unquote devise a plan for the student. What the hell that means, God knows. Because we know, look, we have parents now that won't, don't want their kids to wear a mask to class, you know, to protect them from COVID because it's an infringement on their rights. How do you think it's going to go over if the school takes their phone away and it's a third offense and we say, okay, now we're going to have a meeting with the family? How's that going to go? Not well. In, in, you know, there'll be some parents that will be reasonable about it. But we're going to have a handful of, of them that are going to be belligerent about it. But look, this, you know, and, and what amazed me is that I, when I was reading the story, they said, look, you know, uh, that there are, there's no blanket way that schools handle this. Everybody handles it differently. And, you know, kids are allowed to have their cell phones in the cafeteria if they're like, you know, on a study hall period. Even then, I don't think you should have it. But regardless, uh, they can have it in the hallways during passing time between classes. Um, look, I, to me, it should be very, very simple. If you have a cell phone, it stays in your locker or in your backpack, period. If it is seen in public... You know, use it on the bus. Knock yourself out. You know, maybe let them use it at lunch. That's it. You know, again, I know I sound like the, 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 the you know, 10,000-year-old man here, but come on. You know, I mean, it should just be simple. Look, Lansing, Michigan, very simple. It says uh, they said that uh, they are their students aren't allowed to use the, the their phones at Anytime during the school day, they have a bell-to-bell no-sells policy. You know what? That's what it ought to be everywhere. And not that I am some big proponent of the, the you know, of China, you know, <laughs> far from it. But China's banned cell phone use in schools. They can't even bring them in without special consent from their parents. You know. And they, you know, they're saying that we want to improve, you know, we want to protect their eyesight, improve their concentration and, and prevent internet addiction. Well, you know, uh, the eyesight thing, well, whatever, uh, improve concentration. Absolutely. There's too many distractions now. That's why we, you know, we have a whole generation of kids or a couple of generations of kids, kids that have all been diagnosed with uh, attention deficit disorder because there's too much stuff going on. And kids can't concentrate because there's too many draws for their attention. You know, back, back when I was a kid, there was no ADD. You know, it wasn't. Pay attention. You know, I mean, come on. Uh, and I'm not saying that ADD is not a real thing. I'm just saying that what part of the problem with it is that our lifestyles now, our generation are uh, the constant pull for people's attention and not just kids, adults. You know, how many times, you know, the, the term multitasking has become really big, right, over the last, you know, 20, 30 years. I can't tell you, you know, look, I work from home. I edit books for, you know, a living when I'm not doing this show. I can't tell you how many times I'll be sitting there working, you know, on a book, and I'll have the television on, 
you know, ostensibly for noise or if there's sports on or something, I'll have that on so I can glance up at it every now and then. And somebody will be texting me on my phone. I've got like three different things going on at once. And I'm 61 years old, you know. Uh, And so that's, to me, if kids are in school, they shouldn't have any other concentration other than what the teacher is talking about, what the lesson is for today. So I don't even, it's just a boggle my mind. So I just I just had to throw that out there. And, you know, again, the, the worst part about it is I know there's going to be parents that are just going to be a-holes about this. How dare you tell my kid they can't use their cell phone? You just know that's going to happen. You know, it's, you know, with the whole masking thing, I tell you what, I've got a couple of people in my neighborhood here in Middletown that have signs up on their lawn, unmask our kids and, you know, every, you know, Every time I drive by these people, by their houses, I want to stick my head out the window and say, you're an idiot. You're a moron. You know, it's like, and by the way, you know, I, I made jokes about the fact that I'm moving south and I'm moving down to Republican country. I'm moving down to Trump country, I call it. You know, but literally a half a mile from my house, there's somebody with a huge sign on their lawn. Joe Biden is not my president. Donald Trump won the election. Donald Trump 2024. <laughs> it's, it's just in Connecticut, you know, in Middletown City. This isn't like even in, you know, the hills of Connecticut where we have uh, a lot of swamp Yankees, I like to call them, the northern version of a redneck. But this is the half a mile from my house. Trump is not my, I mean, uh, Pence is not my president. Donald Trump won the election, uh, you know. So these are the same people that are going to argue that how dare you take my kid's phone away. So anyway, all right, let's enough of that. Let's get to sports. Um, so I want to get into this a little bit. There is a very real possibility when the World Series ends in a couple of weeks. It starts tonight. And, and when that ends, there is a, I would say, probably – a 90% chance we are going to have a work stoppage starting on December 2nd. Why? The collective bargaining agreement ends at midnight or 11.59 p.m. on December 1st. Now, you know, the the, the two sides, the Players Association and, and Major League Baseball owners and, and the commissioner's office are negotiating. You know, there's always hope, I suppose. But I think what is likely to happen, I don't even think we're going to get to a point of a strike. Um, and we wouldn't see that, by the way, until spring training if the players decide to strike. I think what is likely, and, and not just me, I mean, I'm, I'm, there's a lot of people a lot smarter than I am that have followed labor negotiations. They believe what's going to happen is that the owners are going to lock the players out starting on December 2nd. Now, what does that mean? What are you going to lock them out of? It's kind of a symbolic thing. But what it means is, is that they'll be the, the owners are going to say, "Well, spring training is canceled until we solve this thing." And if they lock them out, there'll be no uh, free agent negotiating. You know, free agents are can start signing with any team on the sixth day after the World Series is over. So that would be you know like around November tenth or so, November eighth, depending on how long the World Series goes. And there's a pretty, you know, a hefty group of free agents that are not going to be able to sign with any other team while the lockout is going on. 
So that's going to put their futures all on hold. People like Carlos Correa and Corey Seager and Freddie Freeman, uh, Max Scherzer. I mean, there's a lot of you know, Anthony Rizzo from the Yankees. There's a lot of guys that are going to be now sitting, not knowing where they're going to play in 2022 or if we're even going to play in 2022. Um, now, the last time we had a work stoppage was back in 1995. And I don't know if you remember it, but that strike lasted seven and a half months. There was no World Series for the first time in 90 years in 1995. Now, the closest we've come since then was back in 2002. And that was uh, about three and a half hours before players had uh, been set to strike. So, uh, and that was the, by the way, that was the first time since 1969 that a collective bargaining agreement had expired without a work stoppage. You know, and, you know, we've had some other, uh, when they expired in 2006, 2011, 2016, they, we all, we had agreements before they expired. It's not going to happen this time. Why? Um, well, because like the rest of our country, everything is so polarized now and, uh, that nobody can agree on the color of grass. That's part of it. But the other part of it is is that the owners have been kind of getting their way and the owners have uh, had the upper hand on the Players Association for quite some time now. And, you know, the owners and Major League Baseball love to use, you know, selected guys to leak information. They love to talk to Joel Sherman and uh, Ken Rosenthal and guys like that because they know they'll leak uh, what they want them to leak. And, and the, the owners have tried to say, well, we've made – some good faith efforts here. Well, no, they really haven't. If you recall over the summer, some of the stuff that was leaked was, uh, uh, they were talking about having a, you know how we have like a, a luxury tax threshold. Now the collective, uh, or the uh, competitive bargaining tax or connect, what the hell it is. It's uh, the, the, uh, competitive uh, tax. So it's, basically a luxury tax where if you go over a certain amount, there's uh, a tax on that. And that money is spread around to the other teams uh, that, uh, that don't spend that much money. And it's supposed to be for the other teams to be able to, you know, have money to sign more talent. So the talk was, is that part of what they were going to do was now teams would have to spend a minimum of a hundred million dollars. Now on the face of it, it sounds great, right? It sounds like, well, that means that teams can't tank. You can't have teams. And, you know, and, and again, the part that hurts all this is the Tampa Bay Rays that have a payroll of well under $100 million and made the playoffs, and they continue to make the playoffs every year. You know, they won 100 games this year. You know, so that kind of hurts the argument about teams tanking and that you can't win with a low payroll because you can. The Oakland Athletics have done it. Tampa does it regularly. You know, there are teams that don't, but, you know, jumping them from 70 million or 80 million to a hundred million dollars isn't going to suddenly make them competitive. But the other part of this was along with that, okay, we're going to make everybody spend a hundred million. What they were going to do was also at the same time, lower the luxury tax threshold. 
all the way down to $180 million and increase the penalty for teams that go over that. So what they would be essentially be doing, and some of the argument with the whole luxury tax thing to begin with is that it creates what's called what they consider a soft salary cap. I mean, you can go over it if you want to, but you know, you have to pay a tax. If they increase the penalties for going over the 180 million dollars, well now it's no longer a soft uh salary cap it becomes much more firm you know it's not a a written in stone salary cap but it's getting pretty damn close if you make it really expensive for teams to go over the 180 million dollars guess what they're not going to do it los angeles dodgers aren't going to spend 275 million dollars if the uh, the tax is onerous and so while on the one hand by by raising the bottom to 100 but you're going to lower the top it's not going to increase salaries. You're going to, uh, if, if anything, you may suppress salaries a little more. And that's part of the argument here is that the average major league salary has continued to drop. Now, to be fair, nobody's crying for these millionaire baseball players. All right. The average major league salary in 2020 was $3.88 million. That's before accounting for prorated pay because of the pandemic. And based on the opening day payrolls this year, uh, that's projected to be about $3.7 million. So the average player in Major League Baseball is making $3.7 million. Now, the minimum salary, I believe, is something along the lines of $600,000. Again, you know, nobody's crying for somebody making 600K a year. I'd sign up to make 600K a year tomorrow. All right. You know, but so these numbers are a little bit skewed because you have guys like Mike Trout making 35, 40 million dollars a year and somebody else making 600,000. So, you know, I mean, it, it, but still, the bottom line is this the average, the, the, the average major league salary in 2017 was 4.1 million. In four years, it has dropped $400,000. So in a time when prices go up, inflation increases, salaries are going down in Major League Baseball. It's kind of hard to argue, though, for the average fan. And this is, this is where the players have a problem. Oh, my God, we're losing money. Well, yeah, but I can't buy groceries. You know, I mean, the, the, the guy down the street is saying, but I can't afford health care for my family, and you're making, you know, $3.7 million. I, I'm sorry if I don't cry for you. You know, that's what makes this difficult. You have millionaires arguing over a few hundred thousand dollars. You know, and I, you know, so it's going to be very hard. And, and this is part of the problem. We haven't had a work stoppage since 95. All right. So what was that? 26 years ago. You know, we've had two or three generations of new players come into Major League Baseball since then that have no idea what the work stoppage is going to do for them or going to do to their image. By and large. The general public does not get on board 
with players that are making making an average of three point seven million dollars a year. Are the are the owners look? Do the owners take advantage of this? Are the owners making more money? Uh, you know, because of this. Well, absolutely. But you know, it's the same argument you can make uh, for somebody who owns a McDonald's franchise and is paying somebody minimum wage. You know, where we have the argument about the fifteen million dollar a year wage, a fifteen dollar an hour wage. And I mean, that's uh, that's the problem that we have here is that you know, an owner of a business is obviously that their job is to maximize profits. It doesn't matter what business is, whether it's Major League Baseball, whether it's McDonald's, whether it's Joe's gas station down the street. Their their plan is to maximize profits. It's how, it's how companies stay in business. So you know, and we don't live in a socialist country. You know, and 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 so the problem becomes, and you know. My father was a union guy. My father, you know, worked in construction his entire life or most of it. And he was a union guy. He believed in a union. Me, not so much. I've been in a union once in my life and it did absolutely nothing for me other than take money out of my paycheck. You know, and, and uh, you know, if I, if I had an issue with something in the workplace, the union was useless to me. Useless. I'm not going to get into the specifics, but it was useless. So, you know, you're not going to find me getting in line with a union. At the same time, there needs to be a sense of fairness with the owners. You know, and what's fair? You know, look, we've come a long way from the days before Marvin Miller and before everything started happening with the labor organization of baseball. Uh, baseball players used to be indentured servants, essentially. I mean, when you signed with a team, they owned you for life. And they could do whatever they wanted. They could pay you. If you didn't have a good year, they could reduce your salary. There wasn't a damn thing you could do about it. We've come a long way since then. You know, and at the end of the day, if, if this does turn out to be a long, protracted deal, I think the owners are in the strongest position. By and large, the public is not going to side with the players. I don't think it's going to side. It's not going to side side with anybody. The, the the average fan is just going to be pissed off. They don't have baseball. I'll be beside myself. But you know, the players have their backs up. You know, they are in a position now where they're they're probably you know as uh, united as they have been in a long time. You know, and I don't know, you know, the problem is, is that if you are an owner and you're trying to keep the salaries down, if you're, a, if you're the Players Association, what do you have to give to the owners that could kind of get them to soften up on that? And I'm not really sure what that would be. You know, do you expand the playoffs even more so there's more of an uh, opportunity for revenue generation for the teams? It would, do you agree to that? You know, and, and uh, do you, uh, you know, what about uh, doing away with uh, the kind of weird way that players from international countries are signed? How about just having an international draft? The NBA does it, right? You know, you can draft guys from, from Europe. It's not, you know, it's not a free-for-all. Why can't they do that in Major League Baseball? 
So maybe that's part of the negotiations. But, you know, I don't know what the players have that they can give back to the owners to get the owners to relax on this a little bit. And at the end of the day, it's very difficult to tell an owner of a business that they don't have the right to make as much money as they can. That's the only reason that companies are in business. Look, company, the baseball team is not in business uh, for uh, the benefit of uh, Joe Blow down the street. They're in business to make money. You know, we forget that sometimes. You know, we, we make the comment that, you know, well, sports is just business. And it, and it is. And as such, the owners have the right to make money. Now, do they have the right to be completely unfair? No, but I, do I think that the owners are being unfair? I don't know. You know, it's, it's, it's a very complicated thing. Do I think that they're trying to maximize their profits? Yes. Do I think that there is some room for them to come down and, and meet the players, you know, in the middle somewhere? Yes. But do I think that the players are also at the same time trying to maximize their profits? Do I think the players in some cases are, uh, I don't. I don't want to say greedy, but are they are they overvaluing their worth? Hell yes. Not just baseball players. Every athlete, every actor, every singer. They all. I mean, look. And, and I'm not talking. And I shouldn't say every. But you know, for instance, I admire an entertainer like Garth Brooks. Now you can say, well, dude, he's worth you know millions. Yes. But one of the things that Garth Brooks does is that when he has a concert, he controls ticket prices. He will not allow venues to charge exorbitant amounts of money to come see him in concert. It's not going to be like the Eagles. You know, you you want to go see the Eagles now? I'd love to see them again. I saw them back in 1980, back when I was thin and had hair. And they were outstanding. I'd love to see them again. But I'll be damned if I'm going to pay four or five hundred dollars for a ticket to go see the Eagles, especially now that Glenn Fry's dead. And I'm a big Vince Gill fan, but it's not the same. But am I going to pay that kind of money to see the Eagles? No. But we went to see Garth Brooks, uh, my wife and I, my mom, my daughters, uh, a few years ago, and we had great seats. We were, eh, you know, maybe a third of the way up. Our tickets were like $57. I went to a concert just not long ago, uh, 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 you know, for another country artist. The tickets were $120 a piece, and my seats were farther away than they were when I went to see Garth Brooks. So, you know, I think that, that there's, you know, like in, so like that, there is room for, look, you know, for compromise. Ticket prices are out, outrageous at Fenway Park, at Yankee Stadium, at a lot of other stadiums. There's others where it's very fair. And owners will tell you, for instance, the owners in Tampa will tell you, well, if I got to spend $150 million, ticket prices are going way up. You know? I mean, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's a balancing. I don't know. You know, all I know is that if we don't have baseball, there's going to be a lot of upset people. And I'm not sure baseball's in a position where it can afford a long, protracted work stoppage in the middle of the summer when they have the stage mostly to themselves. If they don't play next summer, 
It's only going to hurt the product more going forward. You know, you could make the argument now that they are, you know, the, the number three sports league in the country, and you know, behind NFL and behind the NBA, you know, and ahead of the NHL and ahead of Major League Soccer. But, but you know, you can't, you know, there's only so much that they can afford, you know, in terms of a work stoppage before it really starts to hurt both the owners and the players. And that's the thing. Both of these sides need to understand that at the end of the day, if they blow this and this goes on for too long, it's not just the owners that are going to lose money. The players are too. So it is in, you know, it, it, it behooves both of them to get it done. Unfortunately, I don't believe the owners have made fair and legitimate negotiation offers right now. The stuff that they're doing, you know, on the one hand, the, you know, raising the bottom but lowering the ceiling – well, you're not gaining anything there. And by making the cap a little bit harder, you're not gaining anything there. And by the way, at the same time, I don't necessarily have a problem with a salary cap in Major League Baseball. I don't, I'm not sure the Players Association would ever allow it. But there's a hard cap in the NFL, and it works. Right? There's salary caps in the NBA and in the NHL, and guess what? They work. So why can't it work in Major League Baseball? That's the question that I have. Why can't it work in Major League Baseball? Well, the reason it can't right now is because the players will not allow it. So, it is 35 minutes past the hour. we got to take a break. And, uh, and I promise that I'm done talking about labor negotiations. We're back in a minute. You're listening to The Wake Up Call on Sports Country. Welcome back to the Wake Up Call. It is uh, 39 minutes past the hour. I apologize. I had to uh, step away for just a second. Uh, uh, we sold the house, so we got an inspector here. They're not supposed to be here for an hour. Uh, so a so, uh, little unexpected uh, activity. But uh, we're going we're gonna to plow along here uh, for a few more minutes uh, so I can let these guys do their thing. Uh, in the NFL last night, um, it was an ugly game. There's no other way to put it. It's the second game this week that I watched that uh, it was played in a downpour. I watched that game with the San Francisco 49ers and the Colts the other night because they're having that uh, that huge storm on the West Coast. Well, last night in Seattle, uh, the Saints went in there and uh, played in miserable weather, and it was a miserable, ugly game. Um, I mean, look, you kind of knew – I really didn't know what to expect, I guess. You know, you knew with uh, Russell Wilson being out for Seattle, they were in big trouble offensively, that they were going to have a hard time moving the football. That's true. I did not expect, however, uh, the Saints to have as much trouble moving the football as they did. Um, If it wasn't for Alvin Kamara last night, the, the Saints lose that game. Kamara ran for 51. He caught 10 passes for 128. I mean, Jameis Winston, 19 of 35. I'll give Winston this. He didn't turn the ball over. The one thing that he has really done a great job of this year is not throwing a lot of interceptions. We saw him do that in uh, uh, Tampa, you know, where he he was a a turnover machine. You know, he wasn't very efficient last night. Uh, His legs help him out quite a bit. He's able to get out of a lot of trouble. He ran for 40 yards, but... You know, he wasn't great. But what he had in his favor was the fact that Russell Wilson is out and the Seattle offense under Geno Smith just isn't very good. 
Uh, Smith got sacked five times last night. The, the Saints' defense really won this game. They held uh, Seattle to just over 200 yards of offense. And as I said, five sacks of Geno Smith, two of them on their final drive uh, after the Saints got a, a field goal with about uh, 155 left from the rookie Brian Johnson. And uh, then Seattle gets it back, and they've got to go you know, about 45 yards probably to get themselves in field goal position to try to tie the game up. And uh, Geno Smith just got just, I mean, they were all over him. He was uh, Malcolm Jenkins got him first, and Demario Davis got him fourth and twenty-eight. Uh, tried to make a desperation uh, pass to DJ Metcalf, fell incomplete, and that was the end of that. Uh, so really, uh, the combination of Alvin Kamara and the defense were just really, really good for the Saints last night. That Saints defense really is underrated. Um, and now the Saints have put themselves in a position, you know, with a game coming up against Tampa this week. Uh, you know, look, they, I, I still looking at this team. I just, I don't see them now. If they get Michael Thomas back, that will help. But I just don't see them being a a serious, I mean, are they going to make the playoffs? There's a very good chance they're going to make the playoffs because the NFC is so bad that I'm not sure how they don't make the playoffs, even if they lose to Tampa this coming week. Um, you know, but this is a team that's only allowing 16 points a game, which, by the way, is the second lowest in the NFL. The only team that's allowed fewer points right now than the Saints is the Buffalo Bills. So with that game coming up this week against Tampa Bay, and it's at home on Halloween, if they can win that game, you know, they put themselves in pretty good position. Now, there's, they're, you know, they have to play Tampa twice yet. They still have to play the Dallas Cowboys. Uh, they still have a game coming up against Buffalo. They've still got to play at Tennessee. They've still got a tough schedule. But if Sean Payton can continue to find ways to keep Jameis Winston under control and have him continue to play the way he's been playing and not turn the ball over, then they're going to be in good shape. And as far as Seattle goes, they're, they're screwed. I mean, look, they've, they host Jacksonville on Sunday. You know, uh, the, the way that, that that offense is playing right now, I, I, it would not shock me if, if Jacksonville actually won that game. I mean, you look at what Geno Smith did last night. He threw for 167 yards. 85 of it was on one play to G, DJ Metcalf. That was it. So it was not a very entertaining game to watch, to be honest. You know, if, if, uh, if the NFL was going to put up a game as a, a poster for why you should be excited about pro football, last night was not it. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> but uh, it was, uh, you know, the Saints, you know, it, sometimes you got to take the ugly ones and they'll take the win and they'll take it and run. Um, we talked about this briefly yesterday. When Tom Brady threw his 600th uh, touchdown pass of his career, Mike Evans gave the ball away to a, a guy in the stands. And uh, they eventually got it back, and Tom said, hey, you know, we're going to make sure we take care of this guy, uh, yada, yada, yada. Well, we found out finally what the haul was for the guy that, uh, uh, that Mike Evans gave that ball away to. So what he's going to get is he's going to get two signed jerseys and a helmet from Tom Brady. He's going to get a signed jersey from Mike Evans 
as well as Evans's uh, game cleats from that game. Uh, he's going to get a $1,000 credit from the Buccaneers team store. And then he's going to get two t- season tickets for the remainder of this season as well as next season. Not bad. Well, then news comes down that Tom Brady added one more thing to the list of, uh, of uh, gifts that the guy's going to get. Tom Brady has given him one Bitcoin. Now, as a guy, as the get-off-my-lawn-old guy, I have to tell you what I know about cryptocurrency you could fit on the head of a pin, other than the fact that it's not real money. <laughs> you can't hold it in your hand. Uh, but supposedly at the time Brady gave him that gift, that one Bitcoin was valued at $62,000. So sixty-two grand of fake money, which I, get, I don't know how the hell you even get that fake money to become real money, but having said that, it's $62,000 plus all this other stuff he got, not a bad, and the season tickets, not a bad haul. Now, uh, experts of uh, memorabilia said that if he had held on to that ball, it was probably going to be worth a minimum of half a million bucks. So uh, he didn't get a half a million bucks, uh, but $62,000 of fake money. <laughs> and then all the stuff. And look, you know, he could probably turn around and s- sell those signed jerseys and the helmet from Brady and from Mike Evans. And, you know, I'm sure he could probably get a pretty good haul for those things. So if that's what he wants to do. But, uh, you know, and the guy didn't have to give the ball back. So good for him that he did. And, and good for the Buccaneers and good for Tom Brady for taking care of the guy. Uh, the guy probably thinks he hit the damn lottery. So good for him. Uh, one other NFL note before we take a break. Um, the Jets, uh, after the MRI on uh, Monday, learned that their uh, number two overall pick, Zach Wilson, is going to be out for probably four weeks. He's probably going to miss three games. Uh, so rather than stick with what they did last week, which was Mike White came in after Wilson got hurt and went 20 for 32 with 202 yards and a couple of picks, uh, they traded for Joe Flacco. Uh, they got him from the Philadelphia Eagles for a conditional sixth-round draft pick. Uh, it can become a fifth-rounder based on how much playing time Flacco gets. Now, Flacco was with the Jets for a little while last year. He started four games for the Jets last year uh, when Sam Darnold was hurt. Uh, he's 36 years old. Look, he's a former Super Bowl MVP, but that was nine years ago. And he is a shadow of his former self, which, you know, it's it's a shame to kind of see, but it happens to everybody. We all get old, right? I'm sure in another year or two I'm going to lose a little off my fastball doing uh, doing this show. But uh, uh, with Wilson out, the Jets are going to go to Joe Flacco. Uh, look, the Jets are one and five. They said they're trying to salvage their season. Your season's over. <laughs> You're one and five in a very good AFC. Your season is over. So uh, it just means that they needed another body, and you know maybe Mike White will still get to start this week because I'm not sure how quickly uh, Joe Flacco is going to get up to speed. Because let's realize. Uh, he played for the Jets last year, but they have a new head coach and a new system in place. So it's not like he's coming in running the same system he ran with them last year. But uh, anyway, Joe Flacco headed to the New York Jets for a conditional draft pick, and uh, good luck. That's all I have to say. It is uh, 48 minutes past the hour. We're going to take one more break. We're back in a minute. You're listening to the Wake Up Call on Sports Country. It is 50 minutes past the hour. Welcome back to the wake-up call. A few minutes left before we get out of here this morning, and I let these uh, inspectors do their do their business here uh, on my house. Um, 
the Boston Celtics with a win last night, evening their record at two and two for the season. They had to go to overtime for the second time this season. They win it one forty to one twenty nine. They outscored uh, Charlotte eighteen to seven in the overtime period. Jason Tatum forty one points, a season high for him. Jalen Brown, uh, who missed the last game. Uh, 30 points, including a, uh, a big dunk in the overtime period. Uh, Dennis Schroeder, uh, 23 points in the game, but he had nine of those 23 in overtime. Robert Williams, another strong game, 12 points, 16 rebounds. Uh, this game was back and forth. I watched a good portion of it. And, uh, uh, you know, the Celtics, you know, nobody played a lot of defense in this game. Uh, they were helped out a little bit. LaMelo Ball, who had 25 points uh, to lead the way for the Charlotte Hornet. Hornets got himself into some foul trouble in the first half. He picked up his third foul like midway through the second quarter, so he had to sit a little bit of time there, and he ended up fouling out in the overtime period. He still hit seven three-pointers in the game. He was 7 for 14 from three-point range. Uh, also had uh, five rebounds and nine assists. As much as I detest the ball family, you got to admit the kid can play ball a little bit. Uh, but uh, a good win for the Celtics last night. That is the first loss of the season for the Charlotte Hornets, so they are now... Uh, three and one. Uh, the Celtics will host the Washington Wizards on uh, Wednesday night, and the Hornets uh, will head uh, to Orlando. Both those teams, by the way, were playing on back-to-back nights, so it was kind of a, uh, a level playing field uh, for both teams. Uh, a couple other quick notes. Uh, Texas Tech fired their football coach yesterday, uh, Matt Wells, uh, two days after they lost a uh, a. 14-point halftime lead. They ended up losing to Kansas State despite leading by two touchdowns at the half. Um, in his time with uh, Kansas or with Texas Tech, I'm sorry, uh, Wells was 13 and 17. But they were five and three this year. I mean, it looked like they were kind of turning things around. Uh, they were two and three in the Big 12, but they were five and three. I mean, it's one of these things. It's one of the things that amazes me about college football. the The expectations in college football are unrealistic. If you don't go undefeated or lose maybe you know more than one game, you're in danger of losing your job. I mean, they were five and three. They got a winning record this year. It looks like they're turning things around, and the guy gets fired. You know, and, and we, there's numerous examples of that happening in college football. It's just it's out of control. It's out of well, but the m- amount of money these guys make in college football to be a head coach is out of control, but. Again, it's, it's, you know, as I said about, you know, pro baseball, it's a business, right? Well, college football is, is probably as big a business as Major League, Major League Baseball. Just ask people that, you know, uh, that are at Alabama or at Clemson or, you know, places like that. I mean, it is, uh, I mean, and that's why you have coaches making eight, ten, eight, ten million dollars a year. Nuts. Um, and then the uh, AP College Basketball uh, preseason All-America team was announced yesterday. Drew Timmy. Uh, of Gonzaga was the lone unanimous selection on the uh, preseason team. Uh, also making the uh, the preseason team, Kofi Cockburn of uh, Illinois, uh, Johnny Juzang of UCLA, uh, Colin Gillespie of Villanova, and Indiana forward uh, Trace Jackson Davis. Uh, Timmy was a second-team All-American last season, of course, and uh, he took the Zags to the uh, NCAA championship game, and uh, a lot of people think that uh, he's going to lead them there. Uh, again this year. Uh, one other sad note: uh, Carl Madsen, who worked uh, uh, for the NFL for uh, as a, as an official for over thirty years, he was seventy-one years old. 
He was working the Kansas City Tennessee game on Sunday and died on his way home. He was driving home to his house in Missouri, and uh, they said he had some kind of medical issue. Police uh, around 5 o'clock in the evening uh, got a report of an SUV stalled on uh, I-65 North and an unconscious driver, and it turned out that uh, it was Carl Madsen, and he had died in his car on his way home. It's just, uh, I mean, mean, we all got to go, but, you know, good Lord. Uh, So just sad news out of the NFL. Uh, 71 years old. That is going to do it for us here this morning. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition of the Wake Up Call. Don't forget the World Series starts tonight. And, uh, you know, enjoy it because uh, after that, we might not see baseball again uh, for many months. Well, we won't for sure until February, until spring training starts. And we have to hope there is a spring training, but uh, we'll see soon. We leave you this morning with some music from Levon Helm and When I Go Away. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to the Wake Up Call on Sports Country.